following is a paid program. The views expressed by the following program are those of the sponsor and not necessarily those of 77 WABC and Red Apple Media. This is the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's Editor-in-Chief, David Wildstein. Good afternoon, everybody, and thanks for listening. Uh, We're coming up on the New Jersey primary election. It's just 52 days away, and it'll be here before you know it. But in a way, the Democratic primary for governor of New Jersey happened this week. So that race is already over, and I'll give you the spoil alert. Phil Murphy has won. Uh, I found the story about how Murphy won a primary eight weeks before people voted. Fairly fascinating. I think you will, too. And I'm going to talk about that a little later. Coming up at 420, I'll speak with Assemblyman Roy Fryman. He's a Democrat from Central New Jersey. Uh, Central Jersey, that is actually a thing. And he represents a district that was solidly Republican for, I'd say, more than a 100 years until just six years ago. And I'm going to ask Assemblyman Fryman about his bill to raise the minimum age to purchase long guns. It's part of an extensive package of gun safety measures unveiled by Governor Murphy this week. And I'll also ask Assemblyman Fryman about the road to New Jersey's economic recovery after COVID, including small businesses. So please don't miss that. And at 435... I'll be joined by Congressman Albi Osiris. He is a senior member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He chairs the subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere, and he's a senior member of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. Uh, I'm going to ask Congressman Sirius about President Biden's plan to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan, uh, about Raul Castro's resignation as chairman of the Communist Party in Cuba, and about plans to build the new gateway tunnel across the Hudson River. So there's nothing about this interview that you are going to want to miss. That's all coming up right here on the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm David Wildstein, the editor of the New Jersey Globe. And Phil Murphy won the Democratic nomination for governor of New Jersey on Tuesday. It's eight weeks before Election Day, and that's a rare skill in politics, even for Jersey. So here's how it happened. And to be clear, Murphy didn't really have much of a primary. He was facing two candidates, Lisa McCormick and Roger Bacon. And between the two of them, they'd run for office a dozen times, and neither of them ever won an election. They're what people call perennial candidates. McCormick and Bacon never really had a chance anyway, but they had the potential to be a, a nuisance for Murphy, one that he was right to avoid. Back in 2009, Governor John Corzine had faced three opponents in the Democratic primary when he was running for re-election. Roger Bacon was one of them. Corzine won that primary with 77%. It sounds like a fairly decisive win. But the story, and, and, I, and I reported it at the time in 2009, was that 23% of Democrats, that's nearly one out of every four Democrats in the state of New Jersey, voted against John Corzine, against three challengers with no name recognition, no organization, no real support, no money. 
And that meant that Governor Corzine had not yet closed the deal with voters of his own party. That foreshadowed his loss to the Republican candidate, Chris Christie, who had forged relationships with some top Democrats who, after four years, they weren't Corzine fans. That played an outsized role in Corzine's defeat. So the New Jersey Democratic State Party decided not to tempt the election gods because, and this really is in rocket science, if you're unopposed, life is nothing but good for a candidate. So Democrats mounted legal challenges to the nominating petitions filed by Roger Bacon and Lisa McCormick. Uh, they brought in a real hired gun, Raj Parikh. He's, he's one of the best Democratic lawyers in New Jersey. His his law partner, Angelo Genova, also one of the best, a legend. And, and this is this is probably an obscure baseball reference, but but imagine it's the 1964 Yankees and you have Whitey Ford on your pitching staff and he's joined by Mel Stottlemyre. That is Genovan Parikh. Now, Bacon, I'd say he was fairly harmless. The last time he ran 12 years ago, he got less than 6% of the vote statewide. He, he was a self-described make America great again Democrat. So he was probably in the wrong party to begin with, but He's not a bad person, and that is that is different than Lisa McCormick, and I'll say why. Uh, in New Jersey, though, it's important to understand you need a 1,000 signatures of people eligible to vote in a primary to get on the ballot. And when, when you think about it, it's that's really nothing. New Jersey has 2.5 million Democrats, and you only need a 1,000. Bacon filed 1,290, but... Since more than 300 of his signatories were registered Republicans, a judge decided to invalidate his petitions. That was fairly cut and dry. The case of McCormick, a shadowy perennial candidate, frankly, I think she's a little dangerous since she'll make statements without any regard for truth or fact. Uh, that was much, much more interesting. Uh, Judge Jeffrey Rabin found that none of her 1,951 signatures, not one of them, were valid. Raj Parikh argued that McCormick's petition was a result of a mail merge of an old database, and he produced several witnesses who testified that they had never signed the petitions, even though their names appeared. In one instance... The petition was actually signed. Now, get this. This is absolutely unbelievable, but this is what happened. The petition was signed by first name, middle name, last name. That's what it said. First name, middle name, last name. Uh, something that a, an expert witness viewed as evidence of a mail merge. And Parikh gave evidence that at least two of the signers, maybe more, but at least two of the signers were deceased. And in some cases on this now viewed by a judge as a, as, as a fake fraudulent petition, some of the signers misspelled their own names and their own addresses. Rabin found that McCormick's entire petition was fraudulent, that it was created without any input from any actual voters. All of her signatures, the judge said, were fake. And McCormick and her controversial life partner and campaign manager, James Devine, and this guy has a history that is unreal. Uh, they were no-shows in a court hearing on Monday. Perhaps that's smart. Uh, they 
both avoided being placed under oath. Let me read to you what Senator Joe Cryan had to say. He said, Lisa McCormick and James Devine have consistently proven themselves to be frauds, willing to flout the system at every turn. And he said, McCormick and Devine are among the worst our state has to offer, and they have been for years. Secretary of State Tahisha Way has referred McCormick's petitions to law enforcement for possible criminal prosecution. Now the balls in Attorney General Grabeer Graywell's court, and let's see if he decides to investigate. Fingers crossed that if he does, he, he won't give McCormick and Devine a chance to destroy evidence like their computers uh, before he gets to it. Uh, I want to read to you what Senator Cryan also said. Uh, McCormick and Devine continue to ignore the law and show a complete disregard for voters without any repercussions. Uh, that's a great point, because if if they can't get to this, if they don't investigate it, it empowers people to move on. And 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 that uh, that integrity of our voting system, as Senator Cryan says, it deserves less, nothing less. This is David Wildstein. You are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. This week, Governor Murphy made a deal with the state Senate. He broke a three-year logjam over appointments to the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Uh, This is a big deal because more than three years into his governorship, he hasn't made any nominations. Uh, and this is a, a hugely powerful bi-state agency. I, I especially know that. Uh, the key to this deal is this. Kevin O'Toole, a former Republican state senator, will remain chairman of the agency that has a bigger budget and more employees in six states. Uh, it's going to he's going to stay on. And just just to be clear, being chairman of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey is a bigger deal than being the governor of Wyoming. Uh, O'Toole was originally appointed in 2017 by Chris Christie, and he he kept his job fairly skillfully by setting up a series of political landmines to prevent his replacement by a new governor. Uh, Senate President Steve Sweeney had refused to move the nominations of any Port Authority commissioner without a commitment that O'Toole would remain as chairman. That meant that Murphy couldn't confirm a nominee without Sweeney's consent. And several key Democrats in the Senate had publicly backed O'Toole. Uh, some of them offered to block the nomination. So the framework for this deal remains... I'd say largely identical to how the New Jersey Globe first described it three years ago. Murphy would pick one commissioner. Senate Majority Leader Loretta Weinberg would approve one from Bergen County. The third seat at Sweeney's direction would go to Senator Sandra Cunningham for Hudson. Kevin McCabe, he's the Middlesex County Democratic chairman. McCabe will be renominated to another six-year term. Murphy has withdrawn the nomination of Amy Rosen. She went three years without confirmed by this being confirmed by the Senate. Murphy has picked Rob Menendez, a lawyer with tremendous experience in complex financial issues for one of the Port Authority commissioner seats. Murphy knows this agency, knows uh, Menendez, and Menendez knows this agency from within because he once worked there in the division that manages the ports of New York and New Jersey. Uh, the Weinberg pick is Dana Martinardi, a 20-year councilwoman in Cliffside Park. Cunningham's choice is Michelle Richardson. She had 
has had multiple government jobs. Uh, and this brings a, a very diverse slate, but make no mistake, the chairmanship of this agency has exorbitant power, substantial bylaw authority to make decisions. And the real story here is that Kevin O'Toole is here to stay for as long as he feels like it. Uh, this is David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. We'll be back uh, shortly with Assemblyman Roy Fryman. And don't miss later, Congressman Albi Osiris. You're listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. The New Jersey Globe Power Hour is on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back. It's David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. Roy Fryman is serving his second term in the New Jersey State Assembly. He represents the 16th District. That's parts of Somerset, Hunter, and Middlesex, and Mercer counties. Assemblyman, welcome. I think I may have a, a connection problem. Uh, Assemblyman, do you hear me? I can hear you. Can you okay. hear me? I do. I do. We're, we're good. How are you, Assemblyman? I'm doing great. Thank you. Good. I'm glad. Uh, let me start by saying this. You are a, a a bit of an outlier in Trenton, and I say that in a good way. As being an assemblyman's the first office you've you've held. You've spent your entire life in the private sector. So, as a citizen legislator, not a career politician, how's your how's your adjustment to government been? Uh, it's it's been fantastic, and it's uh, and it's been very very different than being in the private sector. It is um, it's probably the greatest um, experience I've had in in a in a position, um, and and primarily because of the vastness of the issues you're dealing with on a continual basis, um, and it, it far exceeded anything I, I really expected to get into. Um, so I, I would tell you, uh, for anyone that is ever considering it or looking at it, and regardless of where they are in their career and their life, uh, I would encourage it. it. It is an amazing experience. And this week, Assemblyman, you you uh, sponsored a bill that would raise the, the minimum age to purchase a long gun. It was part of the governor's uh, new gun safety package. Tell me about your bill. So actually, David, if I can correct you a little bit about this, this bill has actually been around for three years. Um, it was originally introduced in the prior session, um, and then it was reintroduced in the beginning of this session. Um, it got some notoriety this week because the governor talked about it this week. Um, so, um, And that's sometimes that's what you need to get a bill passed, right? Somebody talking about it. Yeah, yes, and, and, and unfortunately, the reason it came up again is because of the – the incidences of mass shootings that, t- that have taken place across the country most recently. So th- this bill basically says that in New Jersey, as in a, a number of um, states, there is a bifurcated um, minimum age for buying firearms. In New Jersey, it's 21 for handguns, and it's age 18 for all other firearms, whether it be rifles or shotguns. Um, and, and so the legislation basically says, shouldn't it be the same? Shouldn't it be a unified age? And when we go to back to 1980s, um, there was uh, an incident and there was a movement to say, look, how can we reduce alcohol-related fatalities? And they took a look at the data and they said, you know something, there was preponderance of incidences related to the younger drivers and and alcohol-related fatalities. So there was, in the 80s, you may remember, that there was a movement and we went from 18 to 21. 
uh, for the minimum age. And there was a 40% drop-off in alcohol-related fatalities. Didn't eliminate it, but it was a significant drop-off. Now, when you look at the data associated with mass shootings, and um, there is a 27% of the mass shootings occur with the shooters being 25 and younger. Uh, now, we know that gun violence is not just about mass shootings. It is a complex issue. It is an issue that relates to gang violence. It's an issue relating to domestic violence. It's, a, it's an issue on multitude of, of different aspects, and it cannot be solved with one aspect. But the data as relates to mass shootings points to saying, well, wait a minute, there seems to be a concentration associated with a particular aging um, in an age group. Could we have some way of knocking down this, um, this gun violence with by by changing and unifying the gun the minimum gun purchasing age and and this has some exemptions right i mean you, uh, people under 21 18 to 21 can still use long guns for hunting or, or military drills and in, in other areas oh absolutely so it, it does recognize and say look there there is this this doesn't take away the fact that um, there, that, that people still want to go out and hunt. So it recognizes that hunters and sports people still want to have access at, at, for the youth. And, um, and, and it, all it says is that you can't be the owner of the firearm. It doesn't say you can't be in possession with a supervising adult. Um, it's just a matter of ownership. And when we think about it, we as a society say, look, somebody under the age 21 can't be an owner of a pack of cigarettes. They can't be an owner of a bottle of vodka. They can't be an owner. But yet right now we're saying they can be an owner of a semi-automatic rifle or a shotgun. Um, so what we're saying here is in, in this legislation, well, maybe they should be under supervision and still allow the sports um, associated with hunting and the sports associated with com- competitive shooting and all that. But the actual ownership needs to wait to age 21 as it does with handguns. I am speaking with Assemblyman Roy Fryman on the New Jersey Globe Power Hour. Assemblyman, you're a you're a private sector guy. You're you're a numbers guy. My, my father would probably vote for you because you're a numbers guy. Uh, so so I want to talk about I want to talk about New Jersey's businesses and 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 specifically. I know you've been in, interested in 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 small businesses. What What's going to happen to small businesses in New Jersey that are attempting to mount a comeback post-COVID? It's difficult. Um, This is, you know, we as a state have talked about creating the proper business environment for a long time. And, um, and, and, And again, this is not anything, the business environment, and when people talk about a business environment, it's not a singular thing. Um, and when you ask one business owner, well, what is it? They'll tell you one thing and another one will tell you about it's the ease of doing business. Um, so it, to, to, it really depends upon the sector because when small business is now not the same as it was when you think of mom and pop Main Street because small business could be an Internet. It could be um, have a non-storefront. So we have to think differently about business overall. Recovering from COVID has also got, has to be more creative. Um, but also recovering com- from COVID and, and the pandemic can't be our goal in New Jersey. That has got to be a minimum standard 
associated with how we think of New Jersey's economy. Our goal has got to be prosperity and success. And the first priority has got to be recovery. But it bothers me when we talk about our goals being recovery. No, the goal is the minimum. And then we have to build on that to for beyond, um, to making sure that this is a thriving place where people want to come to, where where this is, we have all the right ingredients with the education, the location, um, um, and the diverse workforce. Um, this should be a, a mecca for, for, for so many thriving businesses. So we have all the right ingredients, and we just have to create the right culture and support system for those businesses. So your Republican opponents will say, yeah, the way to do that is to lower property taxes and lower income taxes and cut government spending. Are, are they right? Um, I, I don't think that taxes unto itself is ever go- is is always the, the answer because you can take a look at you know lowest cost is helpful in a lot of aspects, um, but you take a look at a lot of thriving businesses and they don't always work on the lowest cost model. Um, it's ease of doing business. It's 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 some of it is is partnership. Um, I do think that New Jersey does have an issue as it relates to debt. Um, and how we managed it and how we look at our long-term finances and our budgetary issues. Um, and, and David, I, I think you're aware that I have actually introduced legislation about how does New Jersey and how can we methodically and thoughtfully manage the debt that we have? Debt as a tool, whether it be a business, whether it's a, a governmental entity, can be a very, very valuable tool. Um, but if it's not managed properly, it can come back and haunt you. Now, right now, New Jersey has 10% of our budget each and every year is consumed by um, paying down our minimum payment in our debt. That's $4.3 billion. And now, that's a big number, and it's hard to – and sometimes you can get lost in what that really means. The legislation I, I put forth says, look, we've got it. When we have extra money, when we have surplus, when we have unspent budgetary dollars – We've got to take 30% of that to pay down the debt that we had. If this legislation was actually enforced for this upcoming year, it would save approximately 100 to $200 million coming off of this budget. Let me give a little perspective of what that would really translate okay. to. Each and every year, David, we have multitude of um, property tax relief programs, whether it be for our seniors, it's with, um, homestead rebates, property tax freeze, programs for our veterans. We have these different types of programs to make it easier for people to stay in New Jersey because of, uh, of the property tax challenge. That accounts to about $50 million annually of what we put into these programs, $50 million. If we had enacted this debt reduction, that would have saved off the budget another 100 to $200 million. So that $50 million theoretically could have gone to $150 to $200 million or more that we could have invested in these tax relief programs. So it's a matter, so you think about how this debt impacts your ability to spend, where you can prioritize your dollars. Um, so I do think that being much more methodical of how you take down your debt is very, very important for the long-term, long-term success um, of our state and, and how we can attack some of these other fiscal issues that we have. Well, Assemblyman Roy Fryman, it, it, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining me on the New Jersey Globe Power Hour. 
Thanks very much for having me, David. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And I will be back shortly to speak with Congressman Albio Ceres about Afghanistan, Cuba, the new Cross Hudson Tunnels. So please don't miss it. This is David Wildstein, the editor of the New Jersey Globe. And you are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. I always value books and films and good TV. But now, during a pandemic... I appreciate them. I need them more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors... Concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes, it's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. The pandemic of 2020 felt like a dark tunnel. And while 2020 is over, the impact is not. I'm New Jersey's former governor, Richard Cody. The pandemic affected our physical and mental health. My wife, Mary Jo, and I started the Cody Fund for Mental Health to Change Lives. Mental health issues can impact any family, including ours. That's why we want everyone to know about NJ211. NJ211 is an information and referral service connecting anyone in crisis to the help they need. It's for everyone, veterans, seniors, even children. I'm living proof there's light at the end of the tunnel. And it's not a train, it's help. It's NJ211. Remember, it's okay not to feel okay. If you need help, go to nj211.org or dial 211. Headstrong Services, LLC, seeks developer ETL and data warehouse level two, multiple positions in New York, New York, for all activities related to analysis, coding, design, and implementation of new or modified application software for Delta ETL solutions, including data marts and data warehouses within banking, financial services, and insurance domains. Position requires a related master's degree and two years of related experience or related bachelor's degree and five years of related progressively responsible post-bachelor's experience for an equivalent degree is acceptable. Position requires a related master's degree and two years of related experience or related bachelor's degree and five years of related progressively responsible post-bachelor's experience. For an equivalent degree is acceptable. Position is headquartered in New York with travel to unanticipated sites throughout the U.S. Send resume and cover letter to A. Byra Poyukla, 51 JFK Parkway, First Floor West, Suite 129, Short Hills, New Jersey, 07078. Indicate code H-D-E-T-L-D-W-I-N-Y-0321 when applying. Headstrong is an equal opportunity employer it's the new jersey globe power hour on talk radio 77 wabc here's the globe's editor-in-chief david wildstein welcome back everybody uh congressman albio Ceres is the uh, a senior member of the house transportation infrastructure committee he's a senior member of the house foreign affairs committee he chairs the subcommittee on the western hemisphere congressman how are you 
How are you, David? How's everything? Uh, everything is good. Everything's good. Thank you for for joining me. The first thing I want to talk to you about, and I know this is this is an issue that is that that, that is you know tugs at your heart all the time. You you came to the United States from Cuba. I think you were nine years old. And I was eleven. Eleven. Okay, so I was close. I was close, but <laughs> but you you know you've this is this is an important issue for you. And and yesterday, Raúl Castro said he would step down as head of Cuba's Communist Party. What is what does this mean for Cuba? Well, they you know obviously this is close to uh, to me you know because of what my family went through and uh, what the people in Cuba are going through. I don't know if it means much because I think that they're going to put somebody in his place that will probably try to carry out the same uh, failed economy that they have tried to put up for the last 60 years. And the people of Cuba are suffering not only economically, but they're suffering from freedom of expression. And in the last few months, they have cracked down on uh, even the artists on the island putting people in jail. And, uh, you know, human rights abuses continue for the last 60 years in Cuba. And it will continue no matter whether Raul Castro is there or not. And he's going to step down, but he'll be on the sidelines uh, pulling the strings. So what happens? I mean, you as from your perch as chairman of the Western Hemisphere subcommittee, uh, you have you have a lot of say over U.S., uh, foreign policy as it relates to Cuba. What what happens now? What what well, do you well, we, or what do you hope to happen? To push, what we try to push for is funding for um, for the development of, of democracy in Cuba. We do have funding for groups in Cuba that uh, promote democracy and freedom of speech, and uh, so we do uh, we do a lot of that. Obviously, bring attention to the abuses that the human rights abuses that the Castro regime has imposed on the Cuban people. Uh, we try to bring attention through the European Union, saying, look, this is what's happening in Cuba. You people should join in and stop these abuses. And where you obviously I go around uh, in the Western Hemisphere pointing out that Cuba has did a dismal failure for 60 years, and the only way they can sustain power is by abusing the people of Cuba. And there was other big news this week uh, as it relates to to your community uh, committee. Uh, President Biden said that he wants U.S. troops out of Afghanistan by September 11th. Uh, uh, you know, I've I've read that that some people at the Department of Defense think that's a little quick. What What do you think? Is that the right move? Well, I, you know, after 20 years, I think uh, somebody had to pull the plug on this. You know, it, it costs a, a great deal of money, and not just in capital, but in human lives over the last 20 years. And we don't seem to get, we get a, take one step forward and then a step backwards. And I think we have had, what, four or five presidents now? And I think President Biden has made the right decision to step away from Afghanistan, but keep an eye on Afghanistan. And see the Taliban, apparently there's a deal that says that al-Qaeda uh, is not going to be able to be part of Afghanistan in the future. So we just have to see and monitor that situation very closely. But I'm concerned about the withdrawal of the troops. It has to be done 
uh, intelligently. It can be one of these things where we expose our troops to, uh, to shooting or killing of our troops. And let me shift. Let me shift back to, to domestic policy from your your perch. You're a senior member of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, and and you have been pushing for s- solutions to to get across the Hudson River. For I mean, as as long as I've known you, you've been you've been advocating for for better ways to uh, move people from New Jersey to New York and from New York to New Jersey. What's what's the status of the Gateway Tunnel right now? Well, finally, I'm very optimistic. We had the Secretary of Transportation, Buttigieg, on, uh, before our committee. Uh, obviously, I raised the issue about the importance of the Gateway, uh, Gateway Tunnel. And he, he feels that this is one of those uh, projects that are going to move forward. And the president is behind it. So uh, th- that was very encouraging to have the Secretary of State, uh, Secretary of Transportation, talk on the same terms that we were talking. You know, people have to realize that 20% of the GDP of this country comes through this area where this tunnel goes through, this uh, eastern corridor. And the states that are impacted are all sending states. In other words, we send money to Washington. So it's about time that we get our fair share of money to build this tunnel that The tunnels that we have there are 100 years old, and they have been um, deteriorating after Sandy because the salt got into the tunnel and is eating away at the cement. And if one of these tunnels goes, it's going to be chaos, and this country is going to lose a lot, a lot of money in terms of uh, GDP. So Governor Murphy has said he thinks there's a possibility of a groundbreaking uh, before the end of this year. Is is that do you do you agree with him? Hey, I'll be the first one there with the shovel if that <laughs> happens. <laughs> I mean, I've been pushing for this. I even pushed the uh, the Secretary of Transportation on the portal bridge. I actually invited him to come to the bridge and see how the. The rail lines don't line up properly, and how they used to use a sl- they have to use a sledgehammer to line them up properly. And I said, "Look, Mr. Secretary, I'm going to give you a sledgehammer so you can come and see what we're talking about." He said he'll come, but he's not going to use the sledgehammer. Well, I'll tell you, if, if if I were the secretary, when a when a Hudson County politician is standing there with a <laughs> shovel, I would be uh, <laughs> I'd be very serious with, about with it. A sledgehammer. No, but it was very positive. I think the uh, the portal bridge is going to get you know going to get done soon, and I think that the uh, the gateway tunnel because it is such an important uh, part of the economy of this country that is going to get get started. And you think? Cannot, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, we cannot afford to lose one of those tunnels, and, and you know it, it's just impossible. It's just you know. This area will be our warehouse. You know, we have to remember we have the the, uh, the ports in this area, and David, the ports generate about two hundred fifty thousand jobs in this area in the region, and eighty percent, you know, of the region, eighty uh, percent of the merchandise that goes through the ports stays in the region, and a lot of kids move, you know, and, and people have to go into New York. And, and from there to the other parts. So th- this area is just 
a life with economic uh, activity. And do you think with with the president of the United States saying, let's move forward on this project, are we really talking about, we're not talking about if this project happens, are we really now when it's going to happen? I think I agree with you there, yes. We have to remember we have all the members of the delegation are behind it, including obviously the two senators are pushing, and we have uh, three people in the transportation committee, Don Payne, um, Tom Lornowski, and myself, and we're, all three of us are pushing for this uh, the tunnel. And, and obviously there are going to be uh, big projects down the line, and we're going to be right there in first place. And that's to have New Jersey presence on that committee. I mean, I, I know, but, but that, is, that is hugely important to moving a project forward, isn't it? Yes, very important, because obviously funding goes through that, through that committee for transportation. And when you have as many people as we have on that committee pushing for the same project, it certainly has an impact on the chairman. I'm speaking with Congressman Albio Ceres of New Jersey. Congressman, I mean, you've been, you've seen it all at this point. You were mayor of West New York. You were the assembly speaker. You've been in Congress since, since 2006. Uh, Tell me about the governor's race. What's your what's your impression of Phil Murphy, and and should he be reelected? Well, I certainly feel that he should be reelected. Obviously, you know he has dealt well with COVID. This COVID has destroyed many of the state's economy. I think he's done an awesome job in trying to manage the situation here in New Jersey, and I think we're finally coming out of it little by little. And I think you're going to see more and more economic activity in the state that suffered through the through the COVID. And, you know, we, we, we keep vaccinating people. It's not easy. It hasn't been easy. You know, we were ready, but there was no there were no vaccines at one time. So I certainly going to I'm going to certainly support them. And, and Senator Menendez, I saw, you know, he, he didn't hesitate to say Hudson County needs more vaccines. Uh, and the well, state, the state adjusted its policy. Are you, are you satisfied now with, with the supply the state's giving to, to your constituents in the 8th district? Yes. Well, I, I also said the same thing. I, I made a you did. You did. The governor's office, uh, regarding that. And now we're, we're moving on our way. I mean, they have a super site now in, uh, in West New York, at Memorial High School, where on Saturday they vaccinated over 2,000 people, thanks to uh, Holy Name and, and, and some of the vaccines that we have. So they're moving along. You know, thousands of people are getting vaccinated now. And uh, what are you hearing from your constituents? Are your constituents starting to feel a little, uh, a little like life is going to begin to normal? Or they are? What are, What are they saying to you? Well. First of all, they're getting, they're happy that they're getting the vaccine. They feel that's the first step to getting back to normalcy. Secondly, obviously, you know, they, they, they need to, they've been needing some help, and we've been doing that because you know, I don't come from a very wealthy district. So we've been making sure that the food pantries are filled, that, that they get their unemployment check that they get the money that is coming from the care act, you know, and so forth. So we've been getting, my office has been very active with that. 
Okay. Congressman Albio Sirius, always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for coming on the New Jersey Globe Power Hour. Thank you very much, Dave, for having me on your show. Thank you, and we'll talk soon. This is David Wildstein. I'm the editor of the New Jersey Globe. Don't go away. We have more to talk about when we come back on Talk Radio 77 WABC. When it comes to autism, finding the right words can be tough. Finding community in these challenging times doesn't have to be. Join us, even virtually, to move together towards a kinder world for the millions of people on the autism spectrum. Find out how at autismspeaks.org slash together. Here's what's happening at Talk Radio 77 WABC. You can listen to Talk Radio 77 WABC wherever you go. Don't miss a minute of the latest news, local weather and traffic, your favorite shows and podcasts. And stay up to date by downloading the 77 WABC app on all your devices. Make sure to give us a follow on Twitter at 77 WABC Radio. And that's what's happening at Talk Radio 77 WABC. Old school, classic, punk, indie, 80s, 90s, whatever. If it's got passion and a backbeat, I want to hear it. And I want to know more about the artists who create it. That's why I read Rock and Roll Globe. Rockandrollglobe.com features the sharpest takes about what's good and what's um, not so good in music. They call it real writing about real music. It's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just crisp, surprising insight into music of all kinds, interviews with performers, concise reviews of hot new records, a look back at that great album that changed everything. It's all on rockandrollglobe.com. Check out Rock and Roll Globe. That's rockandrollglobe.com. The pandemic of 2020 felt like a dark tunnel. And while 2020 is over, the impact is not. I'm New Jersey's former governor, Richard Cody. The pandemic affected our physical and mental health. My wife, Mary Jo, and I started the Cody Fund for Mental Health to Change Lives. Mental health issues can impact any family, including ours. That's why we want everyone to know about NJ211. NJ211 is an information and referral service connecting anyone in crisis to the help they need. It's for everyone, veterans, seniors, even children. I'm living proof there's light at the end of the tunnel. And it's not a train, it's help. It's NJ211. Remember, it's okay not to feel okay. If you need help, go to nj211.org or dial 211. It's the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Here's the Globe's editor-in-chief, David Wildstein. So for anyone who's been involved in local politics, for anyone who's who's watched it up close, whether it's a, a small or a medium-sized town or a big city, local politics can be contentious. 
And, and as many of you know, I spent some of my early years in local politics in, in Livingston. It's a town of about 30,000 people in Essex County. I, I was elected councilman at age 23, mayor at 25. That was a, a long, long time ago, back in the, the 80s when Ronald Reagan was president. But when you play in local politics, you're, you're bound to face some combat. And one of the people I fought with back in the 80s was Pat Siebold. She's been the Livingston Democratic Party chair for about 45 years. She didn't like me much back then. And, and, and truth be told, she was, she was the only one I was afraid of because she was so smart and she possessed such sharp political skills. Well, I hadn't seen Pat Siebold for more than 30 years until we reconnected about three years ago. She's an Essex County commissioner. She's the longest serving commissioner in county history. And, and I think last year she was reelected with more votes than any commissioner in the county's history. Pat and I share a lot of history together. And it's, it's truly heartwarming to now consider to be my good friend. All these years later, I regret not learning more from her. So the reason I'm saying this is Friday was Pat Siebold, Commissioner Siebold's birthday. And, and while I sent her my good wishes privately, I, w- I want to acknowledge uh, that today. Happy birthday, Pat Siebold, a, a political legend. And, and there's a lesson to all this. There's a reason that I'm bringing it up. And that is to say that sometimes politics gets a little too hot to handle. But cooling off periods are important. And, and at some point, especially as people move on with their lives, it's, it's healthier to hit that reset button. Sharing old memories with Pat Siebold has been truly enjoyable, and, and I'm glad that now, finally, we are friends. This is David Wildstein. You are listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Those of you who follow the show have also heard me speak about Matt O'Donnell, a tax appeal lawyer who is the state's cooperating witness in a corruption sting operation that has so far netted about the smallest fish imaginable. Uh, O'Donnell's law partner, former law partner, Elizabeth Val Danningham, pled guilty this week for her role in what is a straw donor scheme uh, involving involving hiding uh, or avoiding a pay-to-play law that allowed her to put contributions from family members and friends into campaigns without showing the involvement of her law firm. Prosecutors have agreed to seek a sentence of probation under the terms of the plea. The judge can sentence uh, Val Danningham uh, for up to 364 days in a county jail. Uh, I asked Attorney General Gerbeer Graywall to come on the show today to talk about Val Danningham's plea, but he declined. He did put out a press release, but, but he has declined. And at some point, some watchdog, maybe the the legislature, maybe the governor, maybe the state commission of investigation. Uh, I think there needs to be at some point an after action review of this Matt O'Donnell caper to determine a few things. Uh, number one, is it appropriate for a long term public corruption investigation to result in law enforcement directing illegal campaign contributions that that might affect the outcome of an election. And I'm not passing any judgment here. I just think there ought to be some dialogue on this. Uh, Two, is it in the best interest of the public that 
taxpayers fork over $4.6 million in public funds, which is what O'Donnell earned while he was a cooperating witness, monies that could reduce property tax bills as a way of eliminating political corruption. Again, I'm not taking sides, just asking. Uh, And three, did the prosecutors, as licensed attorneys, have an independent professional obligation to report Matt O'Donnell's admitted illegal activities to the State Office of Attorney Ethics. I'd like to know how they got a pass. And I've asked the Office of Attorney Ethics about this a bunch of times. They don't, they don't seem to have a comment. Uh, this plea agreement remain sealed. And we're coming up on the third anniversary of the plea. And Matt O'Donnell has still not seen the inside of a courtroom. Uh, but he's still he still hasn't appeared before a judge. It's clear from the public officials I've spoken to that there's a genuine concern that the prosecutors might have been a little overzealous on the part where they allow uh, an upward revision of O'Donnell's forfeiture as part of his plea agreement. Uh, and it's clear to me this is messy. And at some point, I think somebody's going to wind up offering an explanation as to just just uh, how this happened and not just saying sorry, no comment. Uh, this is David Wildstein. You've been listening to the New Jersey Globe Power Hour on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Kevin Sanders. And I hope you all be back next week. news and talk station download the 77 wabc mobile app now Oak City up from Bernie and Sid in the morning. I'm so excited that baseball is back. Nothing like watching a game with beautiful weather, a nice cold drink, and most importantly, a little action on FanDuel Sportsbook. If you've never been on baseball before, now is the perfect time to give it a shot. FanDuel is letting new baseball users swing for the fences risk-free. Get up to $1,000 back inside credit if you don't win your first bet. Once you have an account, you can get up to $25 back each day inside credit if your same-game parlay bet falls one leg short. This way, you can combine multiple baseball bets for an even bigger win all season long. So whether it's the Red Hot Dodgers or Padres or even Cincinnati, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app, sign up with the promo code SID, and get in on the baseball action. That's FanDuel Sportsbook, promo code SID. 21 plus and present in NJ or PA. First online real money wager only for risk-free bet. Refund issued is non-withdrawable site credit that expires in seven days. Restrictions apply. See sportsbook.fanduel.com for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Talk 
Talk Radio for New York and all of America. 1071 WLIRFM Hampton Bays and WABC. expected. I'm Joe Chiro, Fox News. The Minneapolis suburb of Brooklyn Center, the scene of a number of arrests last night over the latest police shootings. Last night, more